from the dark recesses of my unconscious mind into the glaring light of objective reality. You are listening to the Dark Mind Podcast. Friends and familiars, thank you for tuning in to another episode of the Dark Mind Podcast, where we explore the boundless realm of dark literature and film. Be sure to join the mailing list by clicking the link in the description, because I'll be sending out some info on an upcoming live stream. On today's show, we have a brilliant screenwriter that's been writing short and feature-length films for over 20 years. His most recent films of note are Without Name, Vivarium, and most recently, Nocebo, which is currently streaming on Shudder. So without further ado, join me as we delve into the dark insight of Garrett Shanley. Welcome to the show. How are you, Vincent? Thanks for asking me on. Oh, I am doing great. Thank you for coming on. Thank you for joining me on this fifth day of April 2023. There was a real buzz going around in the online horror community about a movie called Nocebo. So I had to check it out, and I was not disappointed. The story was surreal and full of arcane experiences that left the viewer bewildered, but... When the climax of the movie hits, it's a veritable smack in the face from some very creative social commentary. So I'm very excited to have you on the show. Uh, It's great. Thanks for showing an interest. And I'm glad people like it, you know, and you liked it so much yourself. Yes, sir. So the film centers around a woman that owns a children's clothing line. The film begins with the protagonist, Christine, at a children's fashion show. She has to step away when she receives a disturbing phone call and has what appears to be a psychotic episode. The experience is completely incoherent at that point, but makes total sense at the end. Did you begin with those two connecting points and write the story from within them? And if not, how did you develop the story? Well, uh, it started out as a different story that I was developing with the producers, um, Larkin, uh, Brunella and Emily. And the original story was two very wealthy people who work in the pharmaceutical industry. Mm-hmm. A guy called Felix, who was working for the pharmaceutical industry and his wife, Christine. And then um, there was a revenge on him. who was playing a lot with the placebo nocebo in medication. Mm. And there was a revenge on him, a kind of a Haitian style zombie revenge, you know. Mm-hmm. But Christine was the main character. She was kind of rescuing Felix. Felix wasn't a good guy, though, really. So she kind of found herself in the process of that story. 
But we really weren't that taken with it as we were progressing, you know. And I suggested, I think, that it was in the background data of people like who work in the house, people from all over the world, including the Philippines, and that maybe we would see them almost zombie-like in the background, working silently, non-characters. But at one stage, a door is left ajar, and we see a woman weeping on a Zoom to her child, you know, mm-hmm. who she hardly ever sees kind of thing, you know, and to just mm-hmm. drop that in. Mm-hmm. Then Larkin suggested we make that woman the main character, and we completely scrapped everything and started again. And um, the names Christine and Felix, I think, survived. And mm. that was about it. And the name as well, the nocebo idea. And the first draft then, Diana, uh, actually, when she was introduced, was more of a fish out of water. She was picked up from an airport and we got to see her go to the house. She wasn't so much evidently in control of the situation. And we decided we wanted to change that, you know, and to keep it the point of view of the Western character and to play with the uh, expectations. Mm. Um, so Diana then comes in as this very mysterious character. And then as the story develops, we really see life through her eyes. And the two women's lives mirror each other and then converge, you know? Mm. Yeah. Is that pretty common when you're writing the screenplay yourself as opposed to collaborating with a director is it pretty common for the story to begin one way and then diverge as you write it Mm. well i'm working on one at the moment called jenny k and i wrote it a long time ago and got it into development and recently started working on it again with larkin and someone else but i decided i didn't want to do that script anymore because times had changed so much Mm -hmm. I knew I wanted to keep Jenny. I wanted to keep what was happening to her. But I felt that the subject of that story, she was living in a world on the verge of chaos. I think the chaos has happened or is in progress. (laughs) So I wanted to say something else, but she was a durable character. It's almost like inventing a character of lots of adventures. Mm. So yeah, that happened for me there as well. Um, Let me think about the others. Without name was written really quickly. Stuff had to be taken out for budgetary reasons, but it was what it was. Mm. And Vivarian went through an awful lot of changes, but I think really what happened at the end is, I think we got a bit of Stockholm Syndrome from all the suggestions (laughs) and then ended up, you know, with the advice from an actor, just like she could spot everything Mm. that was suggested and just went back to the second draft and started from there again. I just thought, yeah, this is a cleaner story. You know, none of this extraneous nonsense about why they, why are they there? You know, and you're kind of over answering questions, mm-hmm. taking everything away from the audience. Mm-hmm. So yeah, anything can happen. But yeah, sometimes I suppose you go and you just say, well, what's good about this? What's the truth about it? If you know what I mean by truth. Mm-hmm. And that's what you want to maintain. And also as well, your story might, you know, particularly if you're making low budget films and it takes a while to get them funded. You know, if you're doing something satirical, you might have a best before by date, you know, Mm -hmm. be careful of that. Yeah. Well, circling back to Nocebo, the protagonist, Christine, is almost crippled by a strange illness that seems to be psychosomatic in nature. Was the illness caused by her own guilt or was it sort of a supernatural oppression being wielded by someone she had wronged? 
Well, Diana needs the guilt to get a hold of Christine, to get a purchase on her psyche, to start working her magical revenge. So the guilt is very buried, but uh, Diana knows it's there and it's her way in. Mm. Does that answer that? I hope Oh, that. yeah, 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 definitely. So for the most part, Christine seems to have a good relationship with her daughter and her husband. And then as we've been talking about Diana, that's when she enters the picture. She shows up at the front door saying that Christine had hired her as sort of an au pair. And she apparently forgot about it, or at least that's what we're led to believe. So she's there to help with housekeeping and the care of her daughter. She has this very strange demeanor that's like hard to describe. I don't know if I could put it into words, but I would assume you did. How was her demeanor written in the actual screenplay? She first shows up in the actual screenplay that was used. It says like she's staring at Christine a lot and almost feeding her her lines. And she's smiling, but staring. Mm. And she's quite deliberate in the way she speaks. So I think Chai ran with that. And I think she's amazing. And I'm so glad that she's in it. Mm -hmm. And she seems to be operating on two levels. Someone who knows everything, knows the past, knows what's happening in the present, and knows how pretty sure how the future is going to pan out. While all the time playing this role, you know, and sometimes yeah. being playful with it and everything. So in the script, the initial description was her doing that. You know, and then I think that informed the rest and with the dialogue as well. She'd make some little comments and they wouldn't understand because, you know, they're not in English and she's always ahead of the game. So I suppose that's her demeanor. Mm -hmm. uh, later on, as we learn more about her, as we see the flashbacks, she's a really grieving person. She's very angry. Mm -hmm. uh, she's furious and she's heartbroken. You know, she's been wronged terribly. And the gloves come off then, you know, she just manipulates everything, takes the gloves off. So that was all in script. Telling the actor how to carry themselves and so on isn't. She was described as small, having a battered briefcase and having a smile, but always a stare, a look. Mm, okay. Yeah, that description, she was feeding her her lines. That makes total sense to me because it was like she was prompting her. Well, yeah, she's actually glamoured her, you know, that term. So that's what she's doing at the start. So a lot of people say, you know, how come Christine <laughs> didn't ask for her papers? <laughs> so maybe we made that too subtle, but sure, that's what she's doing. Yeah, I mean, it is kind of like a hypnotist almost, putting you into a suggestive state, I guess is what it's called, yeah. It's a more subtle version of like in The Witch, when the little boy goes out to where the witch lives and she manifests as a beautiful woman. Yeah. Remember that? Yeah, that's that's one form of glamour. Yeah. <laughs> All men more, understand uh, that one. <laughs> played down, very subtle, you know? More like yeah. it is in real life, I'd imagine. Yeah. But who knows? Mm-hmm. Well, as you've mentioned, Diana is Filipino and is well-versed in folk healing. She begins to treat Christine, and it actually seems to help. So were these folk remedies actually helping her or were they purely making her vulnerable to attack? And were the remedies based on anything authentic that you kind of cribbed from when you were writing the script? Oh, yeah. I mean, the remedies 
and everything in it is all, you know, we did a lot of research. Actually, just to get back to Diana as well, mm-hmm. we wanted to make her as authentic as possible. So, you know, we consulted with the Filipinas and we had Epic Media, who also made Nasebo as well, the production company from the Philippines. Mm-hmm. And we had the help of a Filipino filmmaker, Ara Chowdhury. And what Ara would do was I'd say what happens in the, some of the scenes and she would write the scene and we'd have a to and fro. And also help us with like how a Cebuano woman like that would grammatically be speaking in English. Do you follow me? Mm -hmm. So we wanted to make it all as authentic as possible. But a couple of things that were come up with was the Budots, where Diana meets uh, Jomar, you know, her fella, her partner. Mm -hmm. And that's like a kind of uh, electronic, it's kind of like their raves. You know, mm-hmm. and that went down a storm with the people from the Philippines mm-hmm. and the spoon falling off the draining board. I don't know if you noticed that. That mm-hmm. means you've got a visitor and the visitor's female oh, in their folklore. Okay. And uh, I thought I knew Irish folklore a bit. I mean, I'm not an expert, but, <laughs> you know, I know it pretty well. And mm-hmm. we've got it too. I found out since we've got that one too. So, yeah, besides that, we went over to uh, the Philippines and we met tribes. We met the Ati tribe, we met the Bajau tribe, we met witches and, you know, healers, which are called hilots. Mm-hmm. And uh, we just listened. We had the script, but, you know, wanted to do more with it. It's kind of like, you know, how is this going to happen? And I had already done a research reading about it, you know, and the uh, mama brang, which uses insects to invade the victim's body, you know, and that fitted in with the ticks. Mm-hmm. The ticks, of course, fit in with Lyme disease, which some people argue is a psychosomatic illness. Mm. So it was all coming together very nicely. And then, you know, all of the healing was things we had experienced or been told about, you know, like Mm. the blowing into the glass with the stone in it, you know. Mm. We had a session of that, me and Larkin, with a guy over there on the island of Sequahor, which is where all the witches live. Mm. And he went around Larkin and it took him one session to heal Larkin. He had to go around me three times. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, yeah, and then when we met the Ati tribe, they were like a mountain tribe that are forced out of the mountains mm. and now have to live on the outskirts of the city. And they told us about the ashes and communing with the dead, the people you love when they die. And you find their footprints in the ashes. You leave them outside the door and they'll talk to you and you'll find the footprints the next day. We thought that was really poignant, you know. Mm. So that went in and everything like that. So, yeah, all of the remedies are authentic. Just to point out, though, that Diana is faking being a a healer. Mm -hmm. She would know all about that. She knows everything. But she's just using that as a way in. So you're saying the story where the essence or the spirit of that healer passing into her wasn't real? The spirit of... So you repeat that question? So, like, tell me what it's called again, a hilat? Yeah, yeah. Well, that would yeah. be like a midwife, but a healer in general, you know? A, a healer, yeah. So the elderly woman that comes and stays in the house and ends up passing away? Oh, no. So that's not... That really happened. Yeah, she is an ongo, and that's the truth of Diana. Okay. And this is Diana being playful as well. Because she's kind of like, you can choose to believe it or not, because the whole thing, the whole game she's playing with Christine is, you believe me, you don't believe me. You have Mm. to believe me, you know, and you have to believe Diana for her magic to work. Mm. And uh, that's the nocebo aspect, the opposite of a placebo, you know? Yeah. 
Yeah. But you know what? Kind of like to leave something up to the viewer as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah, that happened as far as I'm concerned, I might as well say. All right. Yeah, no, of course it did. I mean, it transfers to Bob's at the end, so Mm -hmm. it's not open for interpretation. That's what she is. Okay. That as well, that soul transference, you know, I learned about that, but then found out since with more research and help from people from the Philippines that it can be in the form of a bird. So that was great visually. Mm-hmm. Larkin loves his birds. <laughs> he found a video of a play where it happened and everything like that. So that was another thing that went in and it all kind of comes together. I thought it came together nicely, you know. Yeah. It's not like making up your own monsters. You're serving other people's folklore, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah. And Without Nang was a bit like that as well in that, you know, everything in it is informed by Irish folklore. And did I understand correctly? I'm not familiar with the actress. Her name is Chai. Is that correct? Mm-hmm. So you were saying that the way she spoke, that was affected. She had to. Oh, you know, no, she doesn't sound like that. No. Okay. She's putting on the accent of somebody from that region, from that background. Okay. And there was initially a bit of controversy about that. But, you know, of course, what do I know? Yeah. You know? But the controversy was quickly quashed with people from the area saying, no, that's what we sound like when we speak English. Okay. That's what my mother sounds like when she speaks English, you know. So Jai really, she knows what she's doing. Yeah. You know. Yeah, you guys really put in some work on this one. (laughs) Yeah, it was worth it. I mean, with a limited budget as well, you haven't got too much time to go over and to do the research. Yeah. But yeah, we did do a lot of research. Well, the climax of the film brings all the disjointed, chaotic elements into focus. And you realize that Christine is not quite the innocent person that she's made out to be. But at the same time, the brilliant part is the viewer realizes that they're not completely blameless themselves. So I was curious to know, was there any recent occurrences that inspired you to write a movie with that particular social commentary? Or was it just kind of the long-standing abuses related to things like global capitalism and the like? Well, there's a fire that's referred to in the film. Kentex factory fire happened in 2015, and 74 people, I think, died in it. Mm. And the circumstances were very similar, well, identical, really, to what happens in the movie. But also, it was really long-standing. And I suppose, I mean... I mean, I'm sort of Generation X. I am Generation X, and I read No Logo, you know, that book. And I think even before that, I had a preoccupation with exploitation like that abroad. You know, I thought we'd outsource slavery. Mm -hmm. And now we've outsourced it. But, I mean, like we had, like, the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory fire was actually an inspiration for it too, which, again, locked doors, same circumstances. You know, and that was in New York. On the back of that fire, I think that a lot of labor rights were won, mm. like the working week, health and safety and so on, or at least were put on agendas. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a funny coincidence as well is that the day that they started shooting that fire mm-hmm. happened to be the 110th anniversary to the day of the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory Whoa. Fire, where 100 <laughs> women died. Isn't that mad? Yeah, coincidence. crazy. Yeah. Wow. So um, the Kentex factory fire is uh, the subject of the song Pugon, which means furnace. And it was written by a band called The General Strike, and it's used at the end of the film. And at the request of the band, at the end of the film, there's a reference justice to the Kentex 
you know, the victims of the fire. Uh-huh. So, yeah, the context thing is really there. And a lot of people from the Philippines, they know what's going on, you know? Mm-hmm. Wow. Some, uh, what would you call that? Um, what was Jung's uh, synchronicity? Listen, there was a good few of them. One of us fell down the stairs. Mm-hmm. I plugged in an electric heater and it immediately caught fire. Mm. Now, that's not normal at all. I think a lot of dust and stuff got into it. So yeah. uh, a crow came down the end of a branch and taunted me through a window. Ugh. I'm going to make a list of the coincidences. They're quite good. You know, mm. a lot of the synchronicities. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, there was a few. But I think that the anniversary one struck me most. And they were doing it. I knew what they were doing each day, but I wasn't with them. There was COVID and I had other reasons I couldn't be with them. Mm. But uh, I was just using the internet, knowing that this was the first day of shooting the fire. And then, you know, the kind of things I follow and stuff, I saw, oh my God, it's the 110th anniversary, you know? Wow. Well, it was a great movie. I cannot recommend it enough to people that I talk to. And I really liked your film Without Name. I was not aware of this film until I started looking into your filmography, and I watched it a couple of nights ago. Mm. And for the listeners who have not seen it, it's about a man named Eric who's surveying ancient land for a developer. And the movie has kind of a Jonathan Harker Renfield vibe to it because the person before him, I think it's Mr. Devoy or Mr. Devoy, had uh, yeah, Devoy, had, uh yeah. had gone catatonic and eric's employer is sending him in his stead and i don't think i remember his employer telling him about what happened to mr devoy so was the harker renfield dynamic from dracula an inspiration for the eric mr devoy plot and if not where did the story come from well devoy wasn't uh, a land surveyor uh he's just staying in devoy's house oh okay yeah, so uh, Devoy was somebody who wanted to, you know, he's a bit of a psychonaut, and he wanted to kind of merge with nature. Mm. He didn't particularly want to be, uh, this is all obviously <laughs> too subtle. Um, and I do think sometimes when we talk about with that name, we do think, yeah, we kind of cut back too much maybe. But we did want to leave it to people to just invest in themselves. But it's kind of there when the character Livia's reading from the book. So... He wants to merge with nature. Gus was his buddy and mm. he went too far. Mm. And so then obviously he's a trapped soul, like, uh, you know, the term of bush soul, which I think is more of an Australian term, but his soul is trapped and has become the guardian of this area. Mm. And Eric is a threat to that area. And it's Devoy's chance to do a switcheroo as long as he puts someone else in his stead. Oh, man. Yeah, way I, too subtle. Huh? <laughs> I feel. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like I'm usually pretty good about sussing things out like that. I had that completely twisted around. <laughs> wow. Yeah, well, that's probably our fault. Uh, well, no, no. I mean, it's probably a good thing that it's not so easily picked apart. Like, mm. yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's the kind of film that I personally thought, if they do dig it, not everybody's going to like it, but if they do like it, that they will go back to it and get other things from it. No, I'm going to have to now. <laughs> As for Harker and Dracula, that didn't inform it really yeah. uh, the things that go on there are more from irish folklore mm-hmm. so you'd have uh, seeing your double like a fetch by location and then we have like fairy woods and fields where you walk into them and you can't get out of them mm-hmm. 
Gus talks about that a bit at the start, you know, mm. and with fairy lore, it's very interesting. It's like they put you in a different dimension, you know, mm. so that's kind of what's going on there. But, you know, we're kind of informed by maybe picnic a hanging rock because I was terrified when I saw that. I think British TV put it on at tea time or something and I was little, you know, mm. and have you ever seen that one by Peter Weir? Mm-mm. It's great. I have to check it out. Yeah, no, yeah, it's fantastic. And so we wanted it to be that kind of, just didn't want everybody to know exactly what's going on, you know, but to know enough. Mm. Maybe I think they could have known a little bit more, but a lot of people got it. And, you know, it all depended on that. Another film that informed it, I'd say, would be a film called The Outcasts by Robert Winsome. It's an Irish movie from 1982. Okay. So, I mean, it's set in Ireland's past and a young girl falls into the thrall of a kind of an Irish warlock, a bad fairy mm-hmm. musician. And that's a fantastic film. I mean, very cheap effects and all that kind of stuff. He's the guy who wrote Blood on Satan's Claw and he directed this one too. So I was very fond of that film and the idea of being kind of there and not there at the same time, kind of locked out of your own dimension. It's kind of frightening and sad, you know? Mm, yeah. Well, judging from your filmography, and I hope the filmography I was looking at is in chronological order, your first short film I see entitled The Message was released in 1999. Is that correct? Yeah, that was a college exercise I did. I did that with Brenda Muldowney, who is a friend of mine, and he's made films like Pilgrimage Mm -hmm. and The Cellar, Savage, Love Eternal. So we were in film school together, so... That was the message, was an exercise we did. I wrote it and he directed it. Interesting. So you said you were in film school? Yeah. Okay. I went to film college in the 90s and left in the year 2000. So made a few films in there. And that's probably what you're finding, a lot of those films. Okay. The ones, Loser Gene and Without Name, were mine, really. And whatever else you found. There was one called The Appliance as well. Yeah, I don't think I found that one. So I guess that makes sense then if that one was done in college. You seemed you seemed to be very prolific in the realm of film beginning from 1999 to present day, but from like 99 to 2011, it looks like there's kind of a big gap. Is that from exiting film college and then working your way into the industry or...? Yeah, yeah. And it's hard to get people to take an interest in what you're doing. And I suppose whatever I was doing wasn't what people were (laughs) were looking for. (laughs) But I did have a film script in development. The first one I got paid during that time, it just never got made. Uh It was about a young man with schizophrenia. And uh, it's a project I'm very keen to make, you know. And I had adapted a children's book by Pat McCabe, who's a well-known writer here. And internationally I'd say and I don't know what happened with that really it just kind of fell apart Um, I don't think you could figure out who owned the rights to it or something I don't know can't remember really and I was also doing other things as well I was making comics with Cahill Duggan and Cahill actually worked with Lorcan on visual concepts for Vivarium he illustrated the book that's in Vivarium you know the book they find Uh, I didn't get a chance to see Vivarium Oh, yeah, he did a lot of work, and he named Vivarium, too, actually. Okay. And I, Vivarium, you're pronouncing it correctly. Vivarium is how I pronounce it. Oh. It's a, but Vivarium, yes. And, yeah, so we had done comics together, and I had teamed up with different artists as well from the Irish small press comic scene, and 
a lot of it would be funny and some of it would be scary. And we were always kind of digging at something, you mm -hmm. know, getting at something, mm -hmm. you know. So that's what I was doing during that time. Then I, I met Larkin and Brunella during that time too. And I went to a film event and I thought this is the last thing I go to to do a film and I have to move on, you know. Mm. But it was a good event. It was set up by the Irish Film Board. They're called Screen Ireland at the moment. And um, it was to connect producers, writers and directors. So I met them there and we hit it off on the same wavelength. And we've worked together ever since. And I forget what year that was, but it was a few years later we got Foxes done as a short movie. Mm. And then without name, and things took off from there, you know? Mm -hmm. Well, on your short film, and I think this is the only one that I saw, correct me if I'm wrong, but on your short film, The Loser Gene, you both wrote and directed, correct? Mm -hmm. So do you like having that level of creative influence over a film, or do you prefer doing one or the other? Um. Well... I've always collaborated with people mm -hmm. doing creative stuff anyway. And even if you are writing and directing, you're still going to be collaborating with the actors and with the crew. Mm -hmm. And they're going to be making suggestions and so on. But I directed both of them because I was in the college learning how to direct. And I made a film called The Darkest Worms. It was written by Cahill, so I didn't write that one. And The Loser Gene, I wrote and directed that. And our friend Miriam produced it. And I uh, enjoyed doing it. I keep things very simple when I'm directing, you know, and that suited mm -hmm. the loser gene. What I wanted to achieve in the loser gene, I felt. I mean, it looks shaky now and the upload isn't great and everything. But although thanks to the guy who uploaded the sound of him, a friend of mine. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I mean, I wouldn't mind doing it again at some stage, but you never know. But I do like as well, just sort of, working with other people and working with Larkin and Brew, you're kind of involved in all the stages. It's not like give us a script and go away, which I think sadly is the experience for lots of other people. Yeah. I say to people and they're like, oh, how do you do this? How do you get into it? Everybody's experience is different. How to get into it is different. It's all equally valid. Mm -hmm. But it's like a band with us and other people come and join the band and leave the band. But there's a core three of us and I enjoy that too. So, yeah, I don't mind, you know. I don't want to be the director. I want to just be part of creating something, you know. Yeah. Well, I watched your film Realm Beyond Reason that was created by Pat Moriarty, which is an animated short, which you wrote. I was curious to know, is there anything different you have to adapt to or keep in mind when you're writing a screenplay for an animated film, like as far as the format or... I guess, just different elements you have to keep in mind when you're dealing with something that's not taking place in reality? Well, that came about because I had done an animation before with Cahill and Richard O'Shea, a friend of mine, mm -hmm. and Pat had seen it and Pat wanted to do one and Pat had read the comics and Pat's, uh, you know, he's sort of an alternative comics guy from America. And, you know, we corresponded, we hit it off, we liked all the same things. But you have an unlimited budget when you're doing animation. It's just like comics that way. Mm -hmm. But when it comes to scripts, I mean, I'd say that the animated stuff I've written has been sort of, it's kind of frivolous fun, comedy. Mm -hmm. Obviously, if you're writing something like Watership Down, it's not like that, you know. But um, it shows how dated I am. I used that example. But anyway, 
it takes work, but uh, you're not exploring the lives of the characters. They were supposed to be funny short movies. Yeah. For me, right in animation. Okay. Well, I had another question about the way you describe or write things in a screenplay. Kind of like I asked you with Diana, as far as her demeanor in nocebo and without name there's a lot of psychedelic spiritual experiences with you know very heavy visuals are those detailed in the screenplay or are they kind of left up to the artistic vision of the director uh, a bit of both okay i would say and then the editing is a big factor in that too tony mm. cranston's edited you know without name vivarium and nocebo so you know how time is being altered or you know you're cutting from one thing to another yeah and even if they stick really close to it, it's always a surprise when you see it, you know, mm -hmm. how things are realized, you know, the camera spinning around, mm -hmm. things like that. Larkin and the others constructed a device. Uh, I better not talk about it because it takes me too long to explain what it is. <laughs> but for the spinning scenes, you know, you know, when you see the chandelier, both the two women when they're spinning mm -hmm. and all that kind of stuff. So, yeah, I mean, it says what's happening in the script, but how they realize it, you know. It's all kinds of surprises. You know, it's great actually seeing it back. But uh, editing is a huge part of filmmaking. And I forget, it's probably Hitchcock or someone just said the film's made three times, written, directed, and then edited, you know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's something that always interested me just from my experience editing audio. I've always wanted to get into maybe editing film. But um, I wouldn't mind doing some audio, actually. I love Joe Frank, you know, that guy? Uh-oh. Yes, uh, San Francisco, I think he did really interesting audio things and sort of short stories that he would relate. I love all that stuff. I'd love to try that one day. Yeah. Well, when there's production companies involved, are you involved in making the pitch, whether that be actually addressing the parties involved or coming up with a plan of attack? Well, it's Larkin and Brunella that make all the connections. Mm -hmm. I'll get to know the people once they're on board, you know, chat with them. But uh, it's them that gets other people invested. Mm. Yeah, and with other things, I mean, for example, as I was just continuing to try and get the film made about the schizophrenic lad. So I was talking to a director, Mary Nighy, who has a film out now called Alice Darling, and a producer, Leonardo Darby. And, you know, we just started talking about that condition. And then, you know, I was like, well, I have a script and, you know, we start working on that together. Mm. So it's like you get together like the musicians in the band, mm. you know what I mean? But there's so much more to happen mm. after that. You know, you've got investors and everything like that, all the production side of it. So really, I think in the cases of the three features with that name and the other two, you know, it's Larkin and Brew do all that slog work, you know, and I just mm. sit at home eating biscuits. <laughs> That's the place to be right there. So what is your writing medium and atmosphere? It sounds like you collaborate a lot, but are you ever locked away in a particular creative cocoon that you construct to flesh these stories out? Well, these days, it's a bit more difficult for me to get the time. And it was interesting. I used to just sort of sit down, start in the morning and work on it, 
not do too long a day because if you do do too long a day, you spend the first half of the next day fixing up the second half of the day before <laughs> because, you know, you kind of went too far. Mm. So I kind of twigged that. I twigged, you know, how long to work in a day, then to maybe go back in the evening and review what you'd done earlier, you know? Mm-hmm. Then I found myself, because of circumstances, having to just sort of like write for shorter spells. And then I thought, I don't know if this is going to work out but I'll give it a go. And then I found it was good because I would like pick a scene or two scenes and I'd be able to really focus on those. And sometimes if you have a longer day, you're still thinking of the whole script or I'll do 10 pages, this kind of thinking. Mm. Whereas you should sort of be thinking about every single scene. No scene is a bridging scene. No scene should be an expendable, you know, oh, this scene's just to get me to the next juicy scene. Mm. You know, I mean, like, I think everybody knows that. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, but, uh, you know, and ideally I did too, but I find that, yeah, I don't mind working for a shorter period. Mm -hmm. I know some people listen to music and stuff while they're doing it. Maybe there's certain songs I could listen to or certain pieces of music, not songs with lyrics, but I tend to just need silence, you know? Yeah, I hear that. (laughs) Well, which screenplay? Maybe in college or possibly later after that, which screenplay really altered your perception of what could be accomplished in film? Um, I used to read screenplays. I don't really so much anymore. Lots of people do, you know, these real students of the game reading everything. Mm. I don't think screenplays are separate to the film, you know. I do still read screenplays written by friends and acquaintances who ask me to read them and give feedback. Mm. But two that I read that I felt weren't rewritten, you know, and then brought out, you know, I thought that these are the scripts that were pretty much what ended up on the screen with some changes. With Nell and I in Sounds of the Lambs stand out, and they're both very different, but they're both great. Sometimes as well, like I read about screenwriting, I think a looser script will be interesting. I mean, Bergman used to work from prose Mm -hmm. and loved the film Walkabout and Nicholas Rode. Walkabout was actually 15 pages and uh, they told him to get out of town when he showed it to the, you know. So he went off and added 50 more, <laughs> just sort of padded out. But that 15 pages, I'd love to see. I'd imagine it was kind of like, here's what's happening. Now you have the freedom to get that across. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Because there's so much that happens in the film that's just sort of slow and not in a bad way. But, you know, have you seen Walkabout? Uh-oh. Uh It's terrific. You should check it out. You know, it's a great movie. Okay. So I'd actually be interested in doing something like that. Maybe if I was directing myself, I would try something like that. But, you know, you make a lot of people obviously nervous doing that. And that's understandable because they're putting money into your film and you're not in Mar Bergman, you know, and you just said, well, I'm just going to go off these few pages in the camera and make a rogue movie and don't worry about it. I don't, yeah. uh, I think so. Well, I've seen Nocebo, seen Without Name, which are both psychological in nature. Are all of your films or the majority psychological in nature? And if so, what kind of draws you to that story element? Um, I would say, yeah, they're all very psychological. I think that life is a psychological thriller. <laughs> so yeah. a lot of people are drawn to it. And we all have aspects of that to our lives. Um you know, to one degree or another. And, you know, I mean, I wouldn't exploit my own life or the lives of others for scripts, but stuff slips through. And I think it's the same for anyone 
you know, as being creative, you know. And I was always uh, attracted to ghost stories and science fiction. I saw Don't Look Now, which is also by Nick Rogue, when I was very young. And I don't know if people would brand that as a psychological thriller, you know, and I've watched it over and over since. It's people's perception of reality, where their place is in the world. Mm -hmm. Do you know what I mean? So they may be approaching the world consciously one way, but the world is doing something entirely different. The idea of what's real and what isn't is very interesting. And also as well, I think everybody's undergoing some kind of crisis in that regard at the moment, culturally. Yeah. At least the people in the West are. I also grew up watching British TV drama. And so there'd be a lot of psychological drama there, you know, be science fiction, ghost stories, whatever. Even Doctor Who sometimes you'd have stories where they're trapped in a room shouting at each other Mm. in the old Doctor Who, you know. And there's a good new one called Midnight, actually, which is worth checking out. Okay. And, you know, I'm I'm still kind of discovering and looking for stuff like because of the Internet now, I'm able to find old things that maybe are a bit before my day Mm. or that I didn't see at the time. And writers like John Bowen, Nigel Neal, and those stories would deal with people encountering nature or history sort of invading their lives. Sapphire and Steel is another show I love, British show. And, uh, you know, it'd be a clash between two different worlds. And even when you deal with that and you're not dealing with mental illness, I think, or something like that, it is like an experience of mental illness Mm -hmm. or a psychological aspect. So all that stuff is a big influence. You know, like I said, I wrote that screenplay about schizophrenia to address mental illness directly in the film. But that would have to be done in a very non-exploitative way. And it would of course, have similar aspects. But when I see it being dealt with explicitly in films, they're usually just using it for, you know, uh, sort of cinematic effects, pyrotechnics, or even for laughs, which, uh, you know, I think is a pity. (laughs) So, yeah, I suppose all that stuff together would attract me to the psychological Mm -hmm. aspects. And even like the Jenny Kay story is more comedy in a way. It is a comedy, I suppose, but not a kind of airplane. It's not like airplane, <laughs> you know, you laugh every two seconds. Yeah. yeah, it's got psychological aspects too, so it looks like I'm stuck with it. Yeah. <laughs> well, I don't know if you come at it this way, but when you're writing, is it purely a... Are you coming at it like a skilled artisan or is there emotion involved in it? And if so... Which screenplay of yours was the most emotionally taxing to write? Well, how I like to come at it is I like to be given a bit of freedom to just get the ball rolling Mm. and maybe even do a first draft. Because let's say you do a treatment first. When you start writing, you realize your character would never do what you said they did in the treatment. I know a lot of people prefer to have a treatment first, but I think that's a mistake because your character will be evolving as you write you know, mm-hmm. then your first draft might be a bit of a mess, but you go back and you take what was good, you know what I mean? And you have something that's real, that's authentic to the characters or to what you're getting at. For me, I don't start off with like, here's the theme, I'm going to make this point, you know? Mm-hmm. Quite often the point will emerge. You'll start out with an image or you'll start out with an idea. Like for one script, Larkin sent me an, a painting, you know, mm-hmm. for one that has been made yet and hopefully will be. Like the endless housing estate was just something that was in Foxes and it was something that was happening in Ireland. Then that leads to all these different kind of ideas. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And the emotional aspects, I would say I don't get like all, like I'm not 
crying and everything when all the characters are being tormented. I'm not laughing either, but uh, uh, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Again, back to that story where I'm trying to kind of do something that somebody else has experienced, like mental illness. I don't know if this is what you mean, but I would find that that, like, I'm not playing. So for people's amusement, you know? Mm -hmm. So that would be a different experience of trying to just sort of do justice to people. A bit of that in Nocebo too. I'm delighted people from the Philippines like it, and they really seem to. So I'm really pleased because, you know, we didn't want to just be lazy and use them for our story. Mm. We wanted them to be the fabric of the story, you know what I mean? Yeah. It couldn't be anything without them, mm -hmm. and they helped us make it. So it's not so much emotional, but, you know, it's the kind of things that go through your mind, you know? Mm -hmm. So answer the question. Of yeah, and just also emotionally taxing, like, as you're writing it, or maybe not even till the very end, you're just like, God, I got to step back from this for a little while. This is really taking a lot out of me. Yeah, well, some of the stuff's pretty heavy. And I went through a phase where I was like, God almighty, you know, I just kill everybody at the end. <laughs> but then I just went, oh, well. You know. <laughs> <laughs> there will be a story, hopefully, that the glass half full, mm. but a lot of happy endings and stuff. I just think I'd do that for children. And I wouldn't mind writing for kids one day, but like we're grown ups, you know mm. what I mean? Yeah, I hear you. Well, I've been asking this to, I think probably the last three people that I've interviewed. It's just an interesting thing to find out what writers think about chat GPT and what you think about it in general and how it may affect writing in the future. Well, I invented my own version and it wrote all the scripts. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> no. All right. So you're the originator. Larkin actually uh, got chat G GPT to write a story in the style of Garrett Shanley. <laughs> <laughs> and it was garbage, you know. It was about this folk healer called Maria, and she was at loggerheads with the local general practitioner. And by the end, they came together to heal the community. <sighs> so I kind of killed them both. That's ridiculous. <laughs> so, I mean, are you, you're being serious? Like he plugged in some sort of... Uh, yeah, he was just having fun. <laughs> okay. So what was it doing? It was taking what's known about you as far as your filmography and using those elements to shape whatever he fed it? Yeah, and I think he wanted it to mainly focus on a blog where I just used to jot down all kinds of mad ideas in a <laughs> with terrible punctuation called Fugger. <laughs> but it couldn't get its head around Fugger, so it just defaulted to Nocebo and tried to make it nicer, I think, is what it did. I don't know. Yeah, it's very milk toast and kind of boring what it comes up with. Yeah, well, I suppose it will get better. And I think writers, you know, a lot of them do write the formulas and stuff. Well, they better watch out because, you know, they might make themselves expendable. Yeah. I'm sure I say a lot of people think I'm a dick for saying that, but a lot of stuff is very formulaic, yeah. you know. And uh, a lot of people get very agitated when they watch a movie and what they heard about at the screenwriting seminar hasn't been adhered to. Mm. You know, I, I don't come from that school at all. Yeah, Like, when I see a piece of art, I want it to come from a human being and to be a testimony of some sort to their experience, you know, consciously, subconsciously, whatever, right? Mm. Yeah. But Mary Shirley wrote Frankenstein. No one else could have written that, mm. right? Yeah. I don't want to see a super collage. And if... AI was making art all the time. It would just be echoes. 
And then it'd be echoes of echoes and then echoalia would happen. You know, when you repeat the same word over and over, like banana, you don't know what a banana is. Mm. And I think it's kind of like, that's what would happen. You know, it's just nothing would mean anything anymore without the human contribution. Yeah, We're outsourcing so much of what it is to be a human being to technology as it is. Yeah, And now this too, like what's left? You know what I mean? Art for art's sake is something that people say and that's something that's it's valuable, you know? Lots of things in life are valuable. Art is no more valuable than how lots of other people live their lives, obviously. Yeah. But it is valuable. That's why we have it. That's why we've always had it. That's why all civilizations have had it. Yeah. And they've created it themselves. And it's them interacting with the world, telling their stories, interacting with each other, telling their stories. I think Vivarium as well is something that people didn't pick up on was that they were two people removed from nature removed from other people, you know, mm. and they were forced into being passive and they were living in a world that a different kind of intelligence thought might suit them. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Like to those guys, um, I know you haven't seen it, but I'm going to ruin it for you. <laughs> but um, I'll still watch it. <laughs> the intelligence that they're dealing with, I'll call it an intelligence, is saying it's almost like we think we put a hamster in a cage ring. Well, you have everything you need, right? Mm. And it's like we're doing that to ourselves. And we're eliminating any kind of happenstance, accident of fate. Even when you're creating a piece of art, there's lucky accidents, right? There's happy accidents. Mm -hmm. I'm sure when people are coming up with recipes, they put too much something in by accident. That's a happy accident. All of that. I could imagine all of that being eliminated. Mm. And I don't think it's going to happen for that reason. Yeah. You know? Let's hope so. <laughs> well, look, maybe we'll have two types of art. Maybe like one is like organic food and the processed crap. Yeah, there you go. But you know what? The processed stuff is so addictive. <laughs> oh, no, it tastes nice. <laughs> <laughs> well, what is the life of Garrett Shanley like outside of writing and directing? Well, I live by the sea mainly in my life, and I'm doing that again at the moment. And I go swimming most days. I'm currently a primary carer, and I have been since the start of lockdown. So that's what I'm doing at the moment. And, you know, I just get evenings away sometimes and go to the pub. And that's just like at the moment. Okay. I don't know if you like in the future. And in the past, it was different too, you know? Mm-hmm. Not too bad. Like Lars von Trier says, I'm prepared to take the good with the evil. <laughs> Well said. When you say primary care, you mean like you're a primary caregiver for someone? Yeah, yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, actually, Christopher Robertson, he is in Scotland. He's a novelist. He does the same thing. Right, yeah. Yeah. Did you interview him? I haven't listened to all of them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he was uh, probably mm, maybe the fifth or sixth, I think. Yeah, check yeah. that out. Yeah, yeah. I enjoyed the... Uh, Speak No Evil interview. I thought that was a terrific movie. Yeah. Yeah, Christian Taftrip is genius. Yeah, it's a terrific movie. Very dark. Yeah. And uh, yeah. I think really significant as well. Yeah. Yes, sir. Well, the same to you and the art that you produce. Thank you. And thanks for interviewing me and showing an interest. Well, it's been a blast talking with you. And as we bring the show to a close, is there anything you'd like to plug or let your readers and or viewers know about? Um, 
I don't know, hopefully we'll have future movies. Keep an eye out for them. Listen to the music of Alpha Mist. Read the comics of Chris Reynolds if you want to get into a dreamlike world. Maritania by Chris Reynolds. Watch Speak No Evil. Watch uh, Spirit of the Beehive. I'll leave it there. I'm just trying to think of things that other people might know about as opposed to all the stuff they do. All right. Well, listeners at home, all links are in the description. And Garrett, thank you again for joining me. Thank you very much, Vincent. And thank you to everyone that tuned in. If you liked today's episode, please be sure to subscribe to the email newsletter where you'll receive the latest episode every Tuesday directly in your inbox, as well as info about upcoming content. Be sure to tune in next Tuesday, where my guest will be one of the most talented, prolific writers in the horror community. So until then, stay healthy, stay sane, and as always, thank you for listening. See you next time. From a time and place as far away on a sea of these epiphanies on the moors of us on the backs of love where the shadows fell. Oh